Somebody tell me how I'm supposed to preach after that. You know, Sunday's already a little bit uh, raw on the emotions anyway after working through uh, these scriptures, but man, you start with a video like that and then you go into worship like that and I can't shut it off now, so bear with me for a few moments. <clears throat> that was my attempt to stall long enough to regain composure. We're going to be moving forward in our Impact World series today. Uh, into Acts chapter 25. So I'd invite you to open your Bibles to that passage, to Acts chapter 25. Nice thing about Acts 25 is it comes right after chapter 24, where we were last week. <clears throat> when you find Acts 25, we'll be reading the first 12 verses together. Luke writes, Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They requested Festus, as a favor to them, to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me. And if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. After spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. Then Paul made his defense, I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law, or against the temple, or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem to stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court, where I ought to be tried. I have not done anything wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. Father, as we open your word today, <clears throat> I ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our our minds and our hearts, that we would engage with your word, that we would be able to understand this supernatural book by your Holy Spirit illuminating it to us. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that we in ourselves are utterly unworthy. And Father, just as Isaiah recognized when he encountered you face to face, we cannot stand before you, for we are a people of unclean lips. Lord, thank you that you yourself cleanse us from our sin. Father, we confess to you that we all like sheep have gone astray. We have each gone after our own way, forsaking your way. Even as believers, Lord, we get so caught up in the things of this world, we forget who we are, and we forget that you are everything. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy toward us. We ask that you would be merciful to us now and cleanse us from our sin. Lord, accept our worship today. We as your people truly recognize that you are our all in all. Father, we praise you. We praise the three in one Trinity, the God of all gods, the one true living one. And we ask, Lord, that you would change us from within as we renew our minds with your word. Be glorified in us today. 
for your sake. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> have you ever noticed that towns have personalities? If you drive through a town, you kind of get a, a different, unique sort of feeling wherever you go. It's a, maybe a culture, but there's a vibe as you go through it. And you drive through Three Oaks, you see a certain personality. You drive through Galeen, there's a different personality. New Buffalo has its own personality. Sawyer has its personality. This is true universally wherever you go. If you go to a big city, it's the same. New York doesn't feel like Chicago, and Chicago doesn't feel like L.A. But there's something about driving into a small town that makes it evident. You know, you can feel it even before you get there as you are driving into the town, but you're not there yet. You start to pick up a feeling of the personality of that town. You're not there yet, but you get a sense of what it's like. Well, that's kind of what we're seeing in our passage today. Chapters 25 and 26 are really one story, one, one unit of thought together. But we're just going to look at the first 12 verses that I read for you earlier. Chapters, chapter 25, 1 to 12 is basically a, a transition. It's kind of an introduction to the rest of the passage. But in reading these first 12 and examining what happens in Paul's life here, we're laying a foundation, and it shows us something of the personality of what we're going to see up ahead. We're not in town yet, but we're on the road leading there. As we approach, Paul shows us today's core reality. That core reality is this. Christ followers must engage the world as representatives of Christ. Let me say that again so we all get it clearly in our minds. As we read through the passage, as we observe the applications when we, when we move through it, we need to bear this core reality, this big idea in mind. Christ followers must engage the world as representatives of Christ. In other words, as Christ's ambassadors, we, as His ambassadors, are fully engaged in this world, but we're driven by the gospel mission. We're here for a purpose but we must not act like we're separate and don't, don't have a, a participation in this world. We've seen that throughout history where Christians have, have pulled themselves apart into little enclaves. We've gone to, to a monastic life. We do that even today, perhaps not in the same sense as a monk or a nun might, but very often we separate ourselves from the world practically. So that we don't engage. I've seen Christians just recently talking about how Christians shouldn't vote. That's a, that's a bad thing. You shouldn't participate in a secular government. I've seen Christians, I use the term loosely here, folks who claim to be Christians, suggesting that even to work and have a job, that's, that's not spiritual. You shouldn't do such things. Not exactly how you survive, but that's an old ancient heresy. The Gnostics in the centuries that followed the book of Acts had this idea that the physical realm was evil. Anything that had to do with this life was in inherently evil. And only the spiritual mattered, and only the spiritual could be good. Therefore, they taught that Jesus didn't actually have a body. He wasn't actually human. He was only God and appeared to be human. And there were a variety of spins on that heresy. But we're not too far from that today sometimes. We swing on a pendulum very often between this idea of not participating in the world because we are called to be separate, which indeed we are. Or going so far as to become like the world like we belong here, which we do not. As we see what goes on in Paul's life, you should see this core reality come out to you. Perhaps it's not obvious at first, but it becomes obvious as we walk through what happens. Christ's followers must engage the world as representatives of Christ. Now, as we've been seeing leading up to this, it's already been happening and we're kind of in a, a semi-culmination of it here. Paul faces hateful, false accusations and persecution. 
these Jews, his own people, his own friends and neighbors to a certain extent, these folks had known him. The Sanhedrin had already known who Paul was 30 years earlier than this, or 20 years earlier than this. He was among them. He was prominent. Much time has passed. He has encountered Christ. He lives for Christ. His purpose is driven by the gospel mission to make disciples. And as he does this, they come against him. Now, having already faced trial with these false charges, a new governor comes, Festus, and the process basically starts over. Festus keeps the trial in Caesarea, avoiding the ambush that the Jewish leaders have, uh, have planned for him. They want to kill Paul. And since they already know they can't get him through trial, they ask for a change of venue so that they can ambush on the way and kill him before he comes there. When they do hold Paul's hearing, his accusers can't back up their charges. Festus tries to appease the Jews by asking Paul if he's willing to go back to Jerusalem to face the charges. Now think about it. He's already standing there. They've already made their case. This is at least the second time he's been with Felix for two years dealing with this. And now Felix has been removed. Festus takes over and we start over again. You might be frustrated if you were Paul. But Paul understands the folly of this idea of going back to Jerusalem. Not only that, he also understands how the system works. He refuses, asserting his rights of citizenship, which will eventually lead to Rome. The Lord has already told him that he will eventually be his witness in Rome as he was in Jerusalem. Now, Paul's focus... And this is pretty easily observable as we watch him go through this. Paul's focus is ever on Christ and ever on the mission of sharing the gospel, of bearing witness to the reality of Christ to all who do not know him. And yet, while his focus is spiritual, his focus is on Christ and the mission, Paul never hesitates to get his hands dirty. Here in this passage, he engages as, as a citizen. Earlier, we saw him demonstrating his willingness to work, to earn a living, to support his own ministry, to earn his keep. Now, as he goes through this, we see in this passage that he remains spiritually focused while living on earth. Paul constantly has his eyes upward, but he never stops connecting and engaging with the world that he lives in. Notice this, his real faith in the real world reflects a real relationship with a real Christ and a real hope of a real heaven. That's a bonus, you don't have to write that down, but just as we're thinking about it, there is a reality, there is an earthiness to Paul's ministry. It's very much like Jesus in his ministry. Jesus was very hands-on. While he was himself God, he came to earth and took on flesh. He didn't consider the, the godness, the divine privilege, if you will, something to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself. He made himself nothing, theologians would say, he condescended. He came down to our level. He got dirty. Jesus himself, God in the flesh, engaged in this world to which he did not belong. So that we who did belong here could be adopted into God's family and become citizens of another kingdom. So, as we put this together for ourselves, we, we want to move past Paul. We want to see what's going on here and then take application from Paul's example. As we read this text, it, we have a, a natural tendency, and, and probably most of us here fall into this. We read a text almost allegorically. We want, to, we want to jump right to application. We want to look for how do we apply it. But before we can do that, we need to understand what the author is writing, who he's writing to, and why. 
What's his point? Not what's the preacher's point. The last thing we need is another preacher coming up with another point. We want to know what God says in the Word, which can be a little awkward in a transition passage like this. So we want to remember we're looking at it as part of this bigger story. The bigger story of chapters 25 and 26, and the bigger story of the book of Acts, and the yet bigger story of the New Testament, and the ultimate story from Genesis to Revelation. What is God doing? What has He been doing? What will He do? And where do we fit into that picture? As we look through the Old Testament, we see these principles that we'll observe in Paul's life come out. What God says to the church, he has previously said in various ways to Israel, his people under the old covenant. And he continues to say this to us now, not in first century Jerusalem or Caesarea, but in 2020, Three Oaks. God is saying to us that we are here in this world because he's got a purpose. He's not calling us to, to live like, like little super spiritual beings that have no connection with the world. No, enjoy the life that you have. But enjoy it as one who is here to represent another kingdom. All right, let's press forward here. Christ's church is called to balance the irreconcilable tension of living simultaneously in two kingdoms at war. Let me say that again because I know it's a mouthful. Christ's church, that's us, the believers, those who are in Christ, Christ's church is called to balance the irreconcilable tension of living simultaneously in two kingdoms at once, uh, at war, sorry. We live here on earth in this physical, corporeal realm where you touch and you feel and you see and you smell and you hear. And you feel things. And you deal with all of the limitations and the ecstasies of having a human physical body. And as we get older, we recognize that sometimes that's not as much fun as it seemed when we were 18 or 20. The reality of living in this life cannot be escaped, nor should it. But while we live in this world, we must recognize that this world system is opposed to God. Satan is called the prince of this world. For this time, until the Lord returns and establishes his direct rule on earth, bringing with him a new heavens and new earth, until that time when he returns, the enemy, the devil, has, if you will, squatter's rights here. He runs the show in this world system. And therefore, our general society, regardless of whether it is a moralistic or completely immoral society, society by its nature is opposed to God. Now, we as Christ followers, when we have come out of that kingdom of darkness and been transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son, we have gone from darkness to light, from death to life, we have been adopted into God's family. We are literal royalty, princes and princesses. We are the children of the King of all kings. And we have citizenship in heaven. The book of Ephesians goes to great lengths to establish for us that our position in Christ is real right now. That God has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ so that we are co-heirs with Jesus himself. Everything that is spiritually true of Jesus is spiritually true of those of us who are in Christ Jesus. We are seated with him in the heavenly realms. But you might have noticed, this doesn't feel much like heaven. You don't get to see heaven presently. Because while your spiritual position is seated with him in the heavenly realms right now, 
and the Holy Spirit has sealed you as a Christ follower, guaranteeing that He will finish what He started in you, we still have to live in this world where we have obnoxious political ads and incessant panic about a pandemic. We have viruses that we have to face. We have economic difficulties. We have deer running in front of our cars on the way to, on the way to church. We have all kinds of struggles in this life. And if we just shut our brains off and pretend like that's not here, don't miss this now, we are not honoring God. He has called us to live here in this world to balance the tension, and it is irreconcilable. It will never go away until we get home or the Lord returns. We will continue to live here while citizens of another kingdom, and the two kingdoms are at war. There's no way to live in a hostile environment as a representative of a foreign kingdom and be exceedingly comfortable. As we, as we work to balance these things, recognize Christ followers must engage the world, the world as representatives of Christ. So, some things that we need to observe. You've heard many times uh, this first point, that we are in the world, not of the world, right? So we are in, not of. In other words, that means we are here, but we do not belong. We do not belong. That's a kind of an uncomfortable thing for us to think about at times, to not belong. But if you turn toward the back of your Bible to 1 Peter, if you get to Revelation, you went too far. The books get a little skinny right before that. They're short letters. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, starting with verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, if you have an older translation, it may say as aliens and strangers, which I personally prefer. It just feels right. I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by Him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. He's giving instructions for aliens, legal aliens, but aliens nonetheless, foreigners, exiles, to live in this present world in a way that honors God. We are naturally going to be opposed by the world. We saw one of our recent memory verses, 2 Timothy 3.12, that everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's going to happen. If you reflect Christ, then the world that is opposed to Christ will oppose you. Matthew 10.22, another of our recent memory verses, Jesus himself said, everyone will hate you because of me. Again, just a reminder, if they hate you because you're obnoxious, that's not Jesus, that's you. If they hate you because of the gospel, it's because of Jesus. So when we represent Him and we reflect the reality of Christ in our everyday lives and relationships, that light hurts the eyes of those living in darkness. We are here, but we don't belong here. Turn back uh, past the book of Acts to the book of John. In the Gospel of John, there are a couple of passages that that I'd love to read to you. I don't know that we'll have time to get to all of it, but I do want you to see this. 
Remembering that we're in, not of, we're here, but we don't belong. John chapter 15. We're going to start with verse 16. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. And in verse 16 he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Now, just so we know where he's going here, the the point that he's making is I've chosen you, I've appointed you so that you will go and produce fruit, produce a harvest. He is referring to the mission to represent him as his witnesses. He will clarify that. Uh, more and more throughout the book of John, throughout the book of Luke, and we see it at the beginning of the book of Acts. We are here, both his disciples then and his disciples now, appointed by him to bear fruit. Verse 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they'll obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. This is our reality. We are in this world, but we're not of this world. We're here, but we don't belong. In other words, Christ followers fully engage the world in which we live to represent the kingdom to which we belong. And that brings opposition. Secondly, notice this. We are in the world, but we are not like the world. In, not like. We're here, but we are set apart. We're here, but we are set apart. Since we're in John, just turn a few pages. It's a little more than a few. We're going to go past the book of Acts to the very next book, the book of Romans. Find Romans chapter 12. Some of you already know exactly what verse we're going to because you've been here and we go to there a lot. We're going to look at Romans 12, verse 2. Paul writes, the same guy that we're talking about in Acts 25, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. What do you suppose he means by that? Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, the The Greek has the connotation of being pressed into a mold. This world has a mold, a pattern, and you're being pressed into it. And you say, no, no, don't do that. Rather, be transformed. There's a a morph in here. As you're being shifted and, and renewed in your mind by reading God's Word, by taking in the revelation of God, the Holy Spirit within you transforms you from the inside out. So don't be pressed into the mold. Instead, be transformed by the Holy Spirit as you renew your mind, push out all of the stuff that we, that we get fed by the world by filling your mind with God's Word. As you do that, there is a change from within. Don't be conformed. We are here, but we're set apart. We're in the world, not like the world. Let's go toward the, the back of the book again. First Peter. I'm going to have to stop looking up all these passages because we're going to go extra long. First Peter chapter 1. I say I'm going to stop looking up the passages. That's the best part of the message. <laughs> you don't need my words as much as you need these words. Here's what Peter writes. Therefore... With minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. As obedient children, notice this 
Same phrasing here. Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Don't be pushed around by the natural urges that you had when you lived like and thought like the world. That's ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. I'm reminded of Leviticus 20, 26, uh, which was a memory verse for us a few years back, where God says, I have set you apart, speaking to Israel. I have called you out from the nations and made you separate, that you should be mine. What God said to Israel, He says to His people, you are set apart. The term holy means other, means set apart. We have been made other. God is innately other. He is not like us and He is apart from His creation. But in Him, He has called us out. He has separated us that we, like Him, should be other. We're here. But we're not like the world. We're set apart for God. 2 Corinthians 6.17, quoting the Old Testament, says, Come out from them and be separate. So there is a sense in which we are not just like everybody else. There's a sense in which we are separate. And some have taken that so far as to say, I'm going to disengage. I'm going to from the world. I'm going to cut myself loose of all these earthly burdens. And, and we see uh, what is known as asceticism. We're going to set aside all of these earthly pleasures, all of the earthly things. So I'm going to just <coughs> fast a lot and, and put on sackcloth and ashes and let everybody know how miserable I am in this life because I love Jesus. That's probably not a great advertising. I, I don't think anybody's coming to Jesus because we're walking around, we're, we're, we're Christians, and life is terrible, and I just can't wait to get home to heaven because this life stinks. This is miserable. I can't wait to get out of here. That is not the picture that we have in Paul's life, in Christ's life. It's not the instruction that we have. We're in this world, but we're not like this world. We are set apart, and yet there is a joy because we have a purpose, which brings us to the next point. We're in not of, in not like. Notice also, we are in this world, and we are for this world. In and for. We are here, and we are on a mission. We are here, and we are on a mission. We are disciple-making ambassadors. Matthew 28, verses 28, uh, 28 to 30. <clears throat> Excuse me. As you see Jesus about to leave the planet, giving what we often call the Great Commission, he sends his disciples on a mission. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, because of the authority that I have, that I'm delegating to you, you go make disciples. Go. Get out there. Be in the world. Be engaged in the world. And as you're going, as you're doing your doings, as you're watching your television, sitting with your family, eating your dinner, going to work, spending time with friends, all of the things that you do, remember, you're here to make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In other words, bringing them into the family. Having them identify with Christ so that they are no longer outsiders, but insiders with a family that can never be taken away because they're in a relationship that can never be undone. And as you do this, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And I'll be with you till the very end of the age. We're here with a mission. We're disciple makers. And 2 Corinthians 5.20 tells us that we are Christ's ambassadors, as if God were making His appeal through us. What is an ambassador? Well, man, that's the whole focus of what we're talking about. An ambassador is someone from one country who lives in another country to represent their home country. And as they represent their home country, they engage 
in this country that they're living in. And they take on a lot of the culture of that. And they, to the extent that they are able to, without violating their allegiance to their home country, they participate, they dig in, they eat the local food. But missionaries need to do this. If I'm going to take the gospel to people in a, in a foreign culture, something that is outside what I'm used to, I better learn to adapt. Sometimes that means you've got to eat foods you don't really like very much. My sister-in-law, Suzanne, who's our missionary to Hungary, all the time she was growing up, had an exceptionally limited palate. Is that the right way to say that, Shelley? I hope Suzanne's watching this, by the way. She basically, had anything, if it had flavor, she didn't like it. Okay, maybe that's an overstatement. But then she goes to Hungary, and it's an entirely different spice palette. But she was there on a mission. So you know what she did? She learned to eat foods she didn't like until she learned to like them. Because the mission mattered more. It's the mission that matters most. And that's where Paul's focus is. That's where our focus is. We're here, and we're on a mission. Christ's church is called out from the world but engaged with the world because we have been sent to the world. Jesus sent us to the world to be his witnesses. If you are a Christ follower today, if you have received Jesus Christ as your Savior and you've been transferred from death to life and you know in your knower that you have been adopted by God, that the work of Christ on the cross, his death as your substitute in your place for your sin is the full payment of the penalty, the wages of sin. Therefore, He has taken your death so that you can have His life. He has taken your sin so that you can have His righteousness. If you know that, then you're here for a reason. Because if, you've all, if, if this were just about you getting to heaven, then the moment you received Him, the Lord could have taken you up. You could be done. Hey, you know what? No more suffering for you. You don't have to worry about that coronavirus. Zoom, you're going to heaven. You don't have to worry about who's going to be elected because you're not going to be there. Zoom, going to heaven. But God, who is sovereign over all things, chose to keep you here for whatever limited numbers, number of years you have been assigned. So while you are here, you have a mission to accomplish. Your mission is to represent Him as best you can in your circle of influence as you are engaged in this world that you don't belong to. So you can represent the kingdom you do belong to. In not of, in not like, in and for. Lastly, we are in this world, and we are engaged in this world. In and engaged. We're here, and we participate, don't miss this last word, we participate purposefully. We are here, and we participate purposefully. As you observe Paul's life, we've been seeing him for the last uh, half of the book of Acts. We see it now. Everything that he does regardless of what the circumstances are, regardless of the situation, whether he's arrested and beaten, whether he gets out of that or doesn't, whether he is uh, shipwrecked on the way to Rome, which we'll see happen later, or eventually even if he's beheaded. It does not matter ultimately because his very fiber, every part of him, each cell of his body believes, for me, to live as Christ. If I'm here, if I'm alive in this body, I've got work to do because everybody needs to know Jesus. This is about Him. And anybody who doesn't come into that relationship dies and is separated from God for eternity. I can't sit here and be comfortable in this world as if this is the point. So Paul, fully engaging with the world, he'll go on in, in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 9 and 10 to tell us, man, I'll be whatever I got to be to get the point across. If I'm hanging out with the Jews, I'm going to do what the things that please the Jews. I'm going I'm to talk about the law. I'm going to focus on kosher foods, right? 
But if I'm with Gentiles, then I'm going to appeal to them as Gentiles. So if we're sitting there, I'm going I'm to eat what they eat. I'm going to drink what they drink. I'm going to do the things that I can do to be identified with them without violating my citizenship. Because who I am is Christ. So I won't do anything to violate that. But underneath that umbrella, I'll do whatever I can. If I'm hanging out with hunters, I'll talk about hunting. If I'm hanging out with, with uh, a knitting club, I'm going to learn to knit. I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm not in a knitting club. I'm just saying. <laughs> Nobody needs that. I will do whatever it takes to fully engage with this world because I'm here with a purpose. And since I'm here on mission, I'm going to fully enjoy what God has given us. God has given us all things richly to enjoy. So I'm going to enjoy them for God's glory. I'm going to eat that pizza. Darn right. I'm going to eat a lot of pizza. The idea of asceticism does not please God. As we reject the good things that He has made, the good things that He has given, when we receive them with thanksgiving, He is honored important for us to, to recognize what the Westminster Catechism says is the chief end of man, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So as we enjoy our participation in this world, let's not be confused. It's not really about this world. I love pizza. It's not about pizza. Praise God for giving me taste buds that I can enjoy this. Praise God for making things taste the way they do. It might sound like I'm being facetious. I'm not, not even a little bit. God could give you the sustenance you need and have no flavor to it, no sense of smell. When you walk into the kitchen and you smell that, that pie baking, oh man, shut up preacher, we gotta get home and have lunch. That smell is a joy for the glory of God. Participate purposefully in this world. When you have been blessed by God to live in a nation that is governed by a federal republic, we, we have a representative democracy, which means that you and I don't serve a king, we are, in a sense, kings and queens ourselves. We rule, we are part of that. For us to not participate in that would make us irresponsible Christians. But as we do, we must remember that this world is not our home. And Jesus will not return on Air Force One. It doesn't matter who gets elected, they will be an imperfect human being. You still are always, until Jesus himself is running you are always choosing the lesser of two evils because they're all sinners, just like everybody sitting in this room or watching online. But we still engage using our minds, using our best reason, and always for the purpose of the gospel. Doing the very best we can to be salt and light engaged in this world. We are here and we participate purposefully. Christ followers must fully engage the kingdom to which we do not belong in order to represent the kingdom to which we do belong. We see this in Paul's example and his instruction throughout his letters, constantly telling us to be a part of this world and how we should live in this world and how to... Uh, how to enjoy life and not get caught up in the legalism that the Galatian church was plagued with, and yet also to abstain from sinful desires that are at war with our souls because this world is not our home. This world is opposed to our king. And so we abstain from that which offends our king or keeps us from our mission. We also see working backwards, we see in Christ's example. He came. He put on flesh. He became human in every sense. So all of the less pleasant things about being human, Jesus experienced. You can let your imagination run with that. It's probably going to be pretty accurate. 
He faced every temptation we face. Jesus walked around on dirty streets, barefoot or in sandals. He was not afraid to engage the world. He was hands-on in His ministry, even touching lepers. He embraced humanity and perfectly balanced the fullness of grace and truth. He was the perfect image of God in flesh. And His instructions to us reflect this as well. But we see even before that Old Testament examples. I won't have you turn there, but in Genesis we see the example of Joseph. Joseph, And you all know the story of Joseph, and maybe you think of it as a you know, a technicolor dream coat, but what we see is Joseph going through all of the difficulties and struggles of life and unjust treatment and yet being appointed by God to engage in a godless government. He, in every situation that he is in, fully engages, fully participates, whether it's as a slave in Potiphar's house or a prisoner in the or the second in command to Pharaoh. He knows and never forgets that he represents Yahweh, the living God. But he engages in the situation that God has placed him in. We see, uh, we see in Jeremiah 29, we often quote Jeremiah 29, 11, God knows the plans that he has, usually out of context, but we, we quote that verse. What God is saying in Jeremiah 29, 11, hinges on everything he said before that. In the rest of chapter 29, I'll let you read that yourself for your homework. But basically what God is saying to his people Israel is, I'm sending you into Babylon. You're going to be wiped out. You're not going to be a nation anymore. You will be subsumed into Babylon. And don't listen to all the preachers who tell you nice things about how it's going to go away quickly and, and you're going to be fine. Don't, don't listen when they say I'm happy with you. I'm not. Rather, Settle in, build houses, engage in commerce, participate because the prosperity of Babylon will be your prosperity. In other words, you're going to be in this situation. You don't belong here. You're not Babylonian. Never forget who you are, but fully engage in this place where I'm sending you because I know the plans I have for you and they're good. And eventually... When 70 years have passed, I will bring you back here. And then, having been stripped of all the, your pride, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. But they had to engage, fully participate. Following that, after they get sent to Babylon, we see the story of, uh, let's call them Daniel and the three amigos. So Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, young men taken as captives from Jerusalem into Babylon, put into the service of the king, and they participate willingly and excellently in the government, but never at the expense of their faithfulness to God. You know the stories, the fiery furnace, the lion's den, but don't miss out on the fact that Daniel, throughout his life, from a young age until he was an old man, served the king, numerous kings, faithfully. And they could not find anything wrong when they tried to frame him. They couldn't find anything wrong with the way he participated in the kingdom. Integrity. Lack of corruption. But absolutely engaged on behalf of the nation where he lived knowing the entire time that he actually belonged to a different nation, the nation of God. These examples, I could go on and tell you about Ezra and Nehemiah, who were contemporaries when Israel came back out of Babylon. Ezra was a priest who was engaged with the government and with public work. And Nehemiah was a cabinet member for the king. He was the, the cupbearer. He tested his his drink to make sure he wasn't being poisoned. So he's in the inner circle of trust. Both of them working on behalf of the Lord in the situation that they are in. In Matthew 5, 
verses 13 to 16, Jesus tells his disciples that we are salt and light. You're the salt of the earth. But he points out in this salt issue that if it stops being salty, if it loses its savor, it's not good for anything. Now, salt, when it gets into your food, combines with the food, and it changes things. We are called to bond with this world and change it. But if we lose our saltiness, if we stop representing the kingdom to which we belong, then we are no longer any good. We're the only to be thrown out in the street and trampled. We have to shine our light. We have to be salt. Jesus even included paying taxes. Yes, he included paying taxes as a way that Christians participate. Rebellion against the governing authorities is not the way of Christ until that governing authority calls us to disobey God. Most of the time, that's not the case. But Jesus said, give Caesar what's Caesar, give God what's God's. What does Caesar get? The coins, they've got his image on it. So he, pay your taxes. What does God get? Everything. Everything. Let me wrap this up. Christ followers must engage the world as representatives of Christ. We have not been taken out of the world, but purposely kept here as ambassadors with a mission. In Christ's high priestly prayer in John 17, He specifically says to the Father, I am not praying that you will take them out of the world, but that you will protect them from the evil one. Jesus desired for us to be in the world and fully engaged on a mission as His ambassadors. The Lord intends for us to be here, to be fully engaged here, taking part in this world to the fullest extent we're able to without violating who we truly are in Christ. That means working, voting, loving, enjoying, fighting injustice, protecting the innocent. But let us never forget that we belong to another kingdom. And let us live with a fire in our hearts for our mission as Christ's ambassadors. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, 